0: welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about one of Greg's webinars. So it's about, does your research provide value for money? Yeah, I was quite interested to do this
1: because it's, particularly as, as an agent as we are, it's something that's very forefront in our mind. And interesting as well to see the attendees at the webinar was a real cross section of organisations, sectors, size. It, it really did a, a, attract a real cross section of, of people.
0: Mm. Well, I guess everyone wants good value research, don't <laughs> they? And aside from doing it with us, uh, we, we, we did. You did have some sort of useful uh, topics to discuss. There's a few things I want to sort of talk through with you. Yeah, I think. There's probably, well, probably the first thing I want to talk about, actually, is something you mentioned really in your introduction, which is this idea that if improving is everyone's responsibility, it's no one's responsibility. Yeah. And I think, and this is something that, that I, funny enough, I've recently done a, a blog post about this. I think it's something that it's really important to get right because people do their research without thinking through properly what are we going to do with it, how are we going to take Absolutely, action, who yeah. can, who's going to do it, who's going to be involved, yada, yada, yada. As we'll talk about later, that includes the costing of that. But I wanted to talk to your guests about getting that balance right of saying we want to involve people, we want to take a sort of collaborative approach to this, we want to make sure everyone's ideas are included, but someone's got to be ultimately accountable for it.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it's a good question. And I've come across some job titles lately, I guess you might as well, like client success director and, you know. And in some ways, I don't think organisations help themselves because whose responsibility is it to look after the customer? Well, Mm -hmm. it's all our responsibility. And so so you get into that, it's everyone's responsibility or actually is it no one's responsibility? Mm -hmm. And I think, now you've asked the question, obviously everyone contributes in some way within the organisation to providing the product or the service and the experience. But it's when it comes to this idea of, changing things. I, I think the really big thing up front is when you, everyone's doing a survey and everyone is doing a survey because they want to make it better for the customer but that thought often ends at that moment of saying we'll get the results and then we'll decide how to make it better and, and that's fair enough because you don't quite know what you're going to have to do but you can certainly put the process in place of saying, well, if we change anything in the organisation, what's the process? Where we would usually set up a team cross-functional. It'd have some targets. it had had some owners. it had send a monthly report to the board. It'd have some objectives. How do we manage that change process? And for some reason... That doesn't happen so often. How do we communicate that change internally and externally, mm. which is obviously a, a big part of, of the customer one? But that thought doesn't off. We'll do a survey and then we'll see. Yeah. And this, will then we'll see is just already, I think, prone to being a little bit grey mm. and failure and.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I guess two things I, I want to talk about. I mean, one is something I mentioned in my online course about kind of action planning is. is that can be useful, I think, is the you know this racy model of, you know, people who are responsible or accountable or consulted or informed. Whether you explicitly use that model or yeah. not is, it, is not the point, but that idea that it, for, for change to happen, yes, you need to involve lots of people, even lots of people can be responsible for it, but only one person can be accountable for it. Yeah. And I think that's a really important principle that there has to be an individual that you can point at and say, why is nothing happening on this? Mm. And you feel that has to be the most senior person. Yes, I think, or at the most senior person's yeah. table, it just has to be. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that, that's just the logic of accountability, isn't it? Like, it, it, mm. yeah, lots of responsible people uh, are ultimately answerable to the person who is going to be held accountable mm. for it. But organisations organisations change a lot, and I think one
1: of my observations. It's a really good question you ask, has got me to think of it from a slightly different way as well. Is you often see perhaps more energy enthusiasm in an internal change program. Hey, we need Mm. to streamline our processes. I think partly because it's quantifiable, perhaps cost-driven or efficiency-driven. And perhaps there is even a number at the end saying, hey, we want to do things 10% quicker, 10% cheaper. And there's a number there. So someone is doing that calculation, the return on investment that we talked about Mm. in, in the webinar, that's perhaps a little bit easier to do and say, right, let's do it, because this is all in our control. And that's often done with perhaps more speed and vigour mm. than the customer one is, which I suspect goes back to it's probably a little bit easier to quantify the benefit on the internal one than the external one.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's come back to that like, quantifying okay. the benefit, because I, I think that's an important theme in its own right, really. But it, I'm sort of thinking out loud now, but I wonder... Is is it that people just approach this all wrong? So rather than saying we're engaging in a programme of improving the customer experience and a survey is an essential part of that, do they say we're we're measuring customer satisfaction and then we'll see what we do with it?
1: Yeah, and I think that's
0: a downfall. You know,
1: If you're not... and I actually think everyone who does a survey is thinking they will do something with it because otherwise you wouldn't spend the time and effort. And certainly, the words that are always said to customer is, we're listening to improve. So I actually think everyone is doing it for the right reason. They're not just doing, let's just get a number so I can report it. I genuinely don't think that happens much.
0: No, but I sometimes wonder if it's at the wrong kind of level of thinking, in a way. So In terms of what? So like, if, you, if you articulated it as, you know, this, is, this is a, a programme of improving the customer experience... That is a significant undertaking. We may re-engineer our processes. We may end up having to, you know, invest in new uh, systems yeah. or logistics or hire more people. Like it could be a big thing, as opposed to oh, we've done a survey. We might tweak a few bits.
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully, I made the point in the webinar right at the beginning about it's about improving your organisation. Same as a change programme would be, same as employee engagement, same as social environmental things, and same as the customer. And it's it's another one of the pillars of the organisation that, that can make organisations successful. So it was really trying to go back and say, see this in the big picture. The customer survey is part of a whole programme. It's yeah. not the end. It's a little bit of a means to the you know, the means to the end. And and I know you said you wanted to talk a a little bit about the return on investment, but I think that's one step beyond that is I think a key part of it in terms of it being seen as better for the organisation is really pinning down that point, and you often make this point as well, about what behaviour are you trying to change in the customer? Because I think sometimes it ends up with we know having happy customers is a good thing, And it is. Mm -hmm. But that's not concrete enough in terms of making the organisation better. What behaviour fundamentally are you trying to alter and how will that affect the bottom line? And I think it needs that precision. It's like if we're reducing everything by 10%, we want to do things 10% quicker. That's really quite tangible. Mm -hmm. It's good to have our customers more satisfied at the heart of our business. Is not tangible. I think that tangibleness links to accountability, links to responsibility.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, I always say that survey data on its own is often not very actionable and it's often actually not very compelling because it's it, yeah. this is just how customers feel. feel and how they say they're going to behave. Yeah. As soon as you can link that to either customer behavior, to your point, yeah. um, in real life, or the, the behavior of people within the organizations and or the stuff you yeah. did to, to affect how they feel, that's when it becomes actionable, and that's when you start making that return on investment argument. Because as soon as you have those pieces, you can say, you know, if we do X rather than Y, then that makes 10% difference to customer satisfaction. Well, that, you know, yeah. what X costs versus Y. Yeah. And if you can say 10% more satisfaction equals, I don't know, uh, 5% more revenue, whatever it turns out to be, then you've got an equation, yeah. haven't you?
1: <laughs> the, the, the different pieces are the same jigsaw. Mm. And you need to have both of them for the jigsaw. You you you, you know you really do, and, and involving employees and all, all that sort of stuff, um, uh, as well. And um, and sometimes it's, I, I can be quite challenging. That I think our customer service world can be a bit because we believe and are fanatical about it, and people in customer service are perhaps vocationally into it. That. Not that they're lazy, they just don't put the effort in, in convincing the non-believers because they should believe. And what slightly doesn't help is sometimes the most senior people say customers matter and then they don't do this, they aren't as passionate and somewhere it gets lost. Of, the, of They talk a good game but they don't back it up. And I think the onus is on us in the profession to say, well, let's convince them, let's talk their language. Same as we would say, talk customers, speak to customers. What are the internal
0: pressure points that's going to make that person listen? I think that's absolutely right. Like I think we do have to talk, sort of serious, grown-up business language. Like it, it, we don't have to become accountants, but we just hope we have to be addressing things that the the, the skeptics, if you like, know, not cynics exactly, but you know, the people mm. who might be unpersuaded or or even might just get kind of distracted by the pressures of delivering discourse as profit. How do you start speaking their language? And I think something that Fred Reicheld argues really powerfully in his latest book, Running On Purpose, is actually maybe we need to change the language. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, And make a case for that, to say, you know, customers don't matter because of profit. Customers matter more than profit because… Which comes first. Because it's sustainable and it's about future profit, not yeah. about this quarter's profit. And I think that that's a really, you know, to me it's a really compelling case. But as Fred Reichel points out, with the way we do accounting right now, it's hard to prove that case. Um, so maybe the first thing we ought to try and do is change the way we do accounting so that we can, for you know, for his instance, he, he introduces this measure earned growth rate, yeah. which is in a nutshell, all the extra invoicing you did this year without having to do any marketing. Yeah. And what I think is really interesting about that is we passionately believe in all this stuff and we grow largely through referrals and retention (laughs) and we don't know what that is. No. Because accounting systems just don't easily give you that.
1: And already you know that figure will be enormously big for invoicing and enormously little on the time and effort that was put in on the marketing side Um, and probably in some ways links to the interview you you did quite recently with Irina as well in some of the um, Mm. um, um, (laughs) post-purchase activity and how how there is a great opportunity there with existing customers that's underutilised and the opportunity to commu- communicate, sell, position, market to them in, in, in what is a very fertile situation.
0: What, what you realise is that the whole language, the whole structure of, of capitalism really is based on the idea of transactions rather than relationships.
1: And Welcome to TLF political podcasting. But this is not about politics. <laughs> it's not saying
0: capitalism is good or bad. It's saying the way we... The way we measure whether a business is su- successful or not focuses us on the short term yeah, rather than the long term. Our transactions. So uh, uh, it's not about politics. It's not about capitalism is evil. It's about are, we, are the, the tools we're using to understand if our business mm. is headed in the right direction. Are they helping us to make the decisions we actually want to make or are they leading us in the wrong direction? And mm. I would argue they're actually making it very difficult to run a successful business, because they're so focused on the short term rather than the long term, and we could change that. That's a choice, you know. We, we could change the way we understand these things, and I think if we did, that might change the decisions we make, and it might re-emphasize the importance of of customers. Oh,
1: I, I mean, I definitely see difference in organisations I've worked with in terms of their ownership. Is it family owned? Is it private owned? Is it mm-hmm. listed? And yeah, you definitely see that there's a different view of how quick do I want the return on anything, even the you know the return on the customers. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, there's there's a different sort of approach, speed, a, a different willingness to invest mm. in time, effort, change.
0: Yeah, to come back to Fred Reichardt again, I've always liked his idea of good profits and bad profits. Yeah, that no, makes a lot of sense, and. It is just obvious that th- this course's profit and loss statement does not distinguish between good profits and bad profits, oh. and it ought to. Yeah, it should do. It should do. Anything else you liked about the webinar?
1: Uh, well, there's <laughs> lots I liked about
0: it. Uh, I think one thing I, I just thought I'd mention really is that the, some of the examples you gave uh, yeah. in different sectors of, of how you might go about making some of those return on investment arguments, just to sort of. Um, summarise them all, I suppose, as they were all showing how customer attitudes drive behaviours. Yeah. But the, the thing I really liked about that is that those behaviours were different. So it, it does depend if, you know, whether you're an insurer, whether you're a social landlord, whether you're a bank, whether you're a manufacturer. There are custom behaviours that, that are important for the success of your organisation, but they'll be different. They'll, be, they'll depend on the nature of your business.
1: Yeah, and, and where I thought this was quite interesting is... We can all default to you know, spend more, recommend more, less price sensitive, look at competitors less. And that's all nice and theoretical and would be true. They aren't in business plans. They aren't in, in, in account management plans. They aren't in the organisation thing. You need to pin down exactly what's that behaviour that you want to alter and how you're going to measure it. And they are dead measurable when you start to think about them. Yeah. You can have targets on insurance, whether it's renewing or retail, whether it's selling more, or likelihood to to B2B you're gonna spend over the next three years, up or down, how we compare to competitors. And certainly, I probably didn't mention it on the webinar, I found over the years in B2B, it goes back to what, again, will drive the passion within the organisation. And I'm pretty sure it was... Pepsi, whose mission statement was to be better than Coca-Cola or the other way around. And there was, uh, uh, Stephen's looking at me very cynically here, but, but there was definitely something on that in terms of actually, in a competitive environment, if we do that, people will think we're better than our competitors. That can be a driver as well.
0: Yeah, I think there's, it's interesting this, because I'm a big believer from a marketing point of view in in the sort of idea of, it's in the book positioning um, that you've got to know who you are. are are you the market leader or are you the challenger or what, you know, what's your kind of who are you because depending on who you are you have to approach marketing very differently um, so there's the you know, famously there was the kind of we try harder in rental uh, in car rentals because we're number two so we yeah. try harder and yeah. that's a brilliant um, sort of challenger strategy and I think it's, it's a bit similar to that in, with Coke and Pepsi mm. Coke is, is you know the number one the default mm. what's pepsi so, so pepsi's marketing has So, coke's marketing is everyone should drink more cola because the more cola gets drunk the more coke gets drunk mm. pepsi's marketing should be we're better than coke so i, I think i think you're basically right
1: <laughs> <laughs> thank you what 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 did you think in terms of the webinar about some of like the practical tips on on value f, um for money because Again, being an external agency, we obviously focus. If people are willing to spend money with mm-hmm. us, we've got to show, you know, we, you know, we may get back. But I think part of sometimes unpicking the initial conversation you have with a potential client is they're already coming to the table with, this is what I want to ask customers and this is how I want to ask customers. Mm-hmm. And I think I use the example of you know B2B doing an enormous web survey
0: yeah. that's not going to get a response I think- rate. And you were absolutely right when you said, um, "Well, this is a roll back a bit, and Mm. then we'll get to where where you were right." Okay, Um, (laughs) everything you said was right. But, but the I think for me, what's very rarely good value is piling up more quantitative surveys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Once you get to a level where it's robust and it's accurate, stop, and don't keep repeating it until you think you've done something (laughs) different. So, I think that's that's point one. Where can you save money? probably on the volume and the frequency of quant surveys Um, that's where you're probably not getting the value um, that you might be. Where I think there is value and where people I think tend to underestimate the value is as you said qualitative research. Why why why? Because it looks superficially qualitative research looks expensive and it doesn't have to be anymore. I think you know online tools have helped a lot with that. And the value you get from, from each piece of research is, is sort of exponentially more. Absolutely, because I,
1: yeah, I mean, we can do very clever things with numbers. you can do linkages, correlations. You, 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 know, you, you can get into analysis by paralysis, but you can really discover some great stuff with, with sort of um, um, data mining and really understanding data. But something that you mentioned quite a lot is it's how customers feel. It's not what you do. It's how they feel. So that's really, you've got to talk to them, listen to language, get into the qualitative thing to see this is how we're making them feel. If we do this, they feel like that. You know, we will try and put numbers on it, scores on it and things like that. But this is how they feel. And if we want them to behave a behaviour, is how they're feeling, altering that behaviour. So you have to talk to them to understand how, they really feel or what is driving those feelings. And I think I mean we obviously talk a lot about customer journey mapping and, and, and things like that as well, but it is really just seeing the world through the customer. And sometimes again I was at a conference and there was a really good speaker who who was just doing the visual signs of if you go into use the example of a solicitor's office, and he basically You know, had this, you walk through a door. Now, do you want it to be a big wooden firm door with lots of certificates down the corridor and giving you some comfort that you're going into somewhere, you know, that's going to provide you with a good customer service and good soliciting and law advice? Or, you know, are you going into something that looks completely the opposite? And he did it in such a stark way. You realise you've already started playing with customer perception before you've met the person who's going to give you the advice. You're already two-thirds of the way down there with your initial
0: impression Mm -hmm. and it was very powerful the way, very powerful the way you did it. It, It's a hugely uh, sort of overlooked part of the customer experience. All all of that, those unconscious cues, all all that sort of signalling that you do, you know, used, people used to talk about the total customer experience and, and that's what they were trying to get at, is, mm. at least part of what they are trying to get at, was, was the importance of all of those details. So it's the environment that things happen in, it's the language you use, it's the graphic design, it's, yeah. you know, it's all of those choices, send messages. And I, I really like this idea of congruence. Like, are they congruent with... You are know, they the, all sending the same message? The yeah. values, yeah, the, the, yeah. Are they sending the same message? Are they... Setting customers up to expect the right thing, so it doesn't necessarily have to be always kind of high end. It has to be yeah. accurate. It has to be who consistent. you are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
1: consistent with you and what you're offering to give mm. the right, you know, to give the right impression.
0: One of the things you, you talked about, Greg, is the importance of getting your questionnaire right. So you know, the the, the fundamental. Stock in trade, I guess, of a researcher, is, is a questionnaire. What What is it that's generating the data we're going to make these decisions about customers about? So what could people do to make sure they've got a good questionnaire? Mm.
1: <laughs> well, I think I use the phrase, you know, the right questions to the right people in the right way. And organisations are pretty good at understanding who the right people are. B2B, it can be a little bit more complicated with the decision-making process. And I think asking the questions in the right way Way it does have some um, pitfalls and dangers to uh, um, to it, but I think ensuring that the questions uh, are asking the right thing is probably where people who are just skilled, re- you know, researchers are, are are much better at it. And I can remember before I did this job, um, I commissioned someone to do a customer survey with, with um, the organisation um, I worked in. It wasn't this organisation, and within six months of working for this organisation, I realised how completely wrong it was <laughs> in terms of rating scales, questions, and actually it didn't drive any change within our organisation. It ended up being interesting. People, customers were happy, said positive things. People who were unhappy said negative things, and and it didn't bring out any surprises, but it certainly didn't bring out any action. Yeah, so I think the... Um, it's 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 the difference between a professional builder and a DIY person, it, it, it isn't it? It depends, but with something that's as fundamental as your customers, I think ensuring you know the questionnaire will help provide the case for the return on investment will help drive change. And I suppose I know I'm walking on here a, a, a little bit, Stephen, but I, I think about organisations who contact us are often contacting us. Be, they all have a customer survey. It's just not doing what it should mm-hmm. doing. Getting customer feedback is really easy to do, but getting the right feedback, you know, is, is difficult. So I, I I said it at the end of the webinar, and I know it, it's an offer you, you know you and I would 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 always throw out if anyone listening this wants to send us their questionnaire. We are the sad sort of people that enjoy looking at questionnaires and. Just saying, how they can be better. And I remember when we used to do web um, seminars in hotels. And I, I just used to always pick up the questionnaire that the hotel left in the room, <laughs> and I could find four or five things where I said, "Look, this isn't going to give the right answer." Look, 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 look. And, and when someone pointed it out, it's dead obvious. But too, it's a difference between understanding ambiguous questions and leading questions, and just knowing what you can do with the results.
0: Yeah. So I think there's yeah, there's lots of I guess things you learn from. From theory and textbooks, so you know, this, that's a leading question, or that's an unbiased scale, or yeah. those, those sorts of technical things. There's also the bit of experience, like actually that isn't going to work, or this would work a bit better. Yeah. Or I think the other the other thing that um, I'd always hope to bring to a questionnaire for a client is addressing that business need of, of you know what is it you're trying to achieve as an organisation, and can we make sure that this research addresses that so that it's not just interesting, it's helping you learn something that's going to enable you to make a decision and that's for me that's what research has to be about
1: yeah i, I with our clients we, we we do sort of kick off meetings and obviously a big part of that is about you know how we're we going to do it where, where how all all, all all the practical things but i always think some of the best input comes from just let me meet other stakeholders not people who are involved in the customer journey because actually yeah we've got 10 15 minutes on the telephone the stuff we need to ask might take five to ten minutes. So, there's probably is five minutes to ask other stuff that's interesting to the business. Mm. And you, you know, when you talk someone, says, Well, do you know what? I'm thinking of doing this. So, well, sh- should we ask customers about that? Mm. Oh, yeah, that'd be a good idea. Because if customers like that, it's a great idea. If customers don't like that, perhaps I need to rethink that. And there's like that penny dropping moment when they're going, Could we ask customers about that? Yeah, you know, of course. Why not? Yeah. Can. Yeah. And so, I think involving other people in it just really it's customer feedback it doesn't have to be about satisfaction it doesn't have to be about Mm. loyalty but engaging co-creating with customers is just again it's making those links
0: isn't it so i often find 20 minutes with the md or the chief exec can often be the source of that well why don't we ask about this thing that you're thinking about or planning or not sure about and that's um, really useful for the business and it's genuinely you know and that's the thing it's useful to useful. the business absolutely uh, well that probably uh, wraps up your webinar i'll put a link to greg's webinar in the show notes so you can uh, go and watch it on demand if you haven't already so thank you very much for listening uh if you're listening on itunes please subscribe rate and review us and if you'd like to get in touch you can find this on twitter at tlf research or at tlfresearch.com cheers everyone